This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, Trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. This is a CBS News special. Who killed George Polk? Now from Washington, here is CBS News White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy. The name George Polk is known to many in journalism. Each year, an award for courageous reporting is given out in his honor. But few Americans today know the story of a Navy veteran and pioneering broadcaster who was killed for his reporting. That man was a CBS News correspondent. Listen now to the ugly, angry noise of the Palestine controversy. This is George Polk reporting from Athens. A 34-year-old, tall, lean, blonde American full of courage and an insatiable appetite for truth, for truth, for truth. He was murdered in Greece in 1948, 75 years ago, and this is the third part of our investigation into that unsolved murder. We felt it important to bring you this story and to tell it more fully than we at CBS have since it happened because the targeted killing of a journalist has modern echoes. The tragedy of George Polk's murder was compounded by the fact that U.S. officials stood silent as an innocent man brutalized and tortured falsely confessed to a role in the crime. In this episode, you'll hear from the leader of the communists whom Polk was aiming to interview, and we'll explain why this story still matters in 2023. But first, let's pick up where we left off in our last episode, as author Kati Martin begins to tell us her theory of who killed George Polk. He was really being manipulated and led into a well-laid trap. Kati Martin detailed it in her book, The Polk Conspiracy. I don't think I slept a wink the whole time that I stayed in that hotel in Salonika, the same hotel where George Polk had stayed, because I was so aware of how sinister this murder plot had been. And by then I knew that the people who killed Polk were capable of rubbing out another reporter. As we've recounted, in the spring of 1948, George Polk had developed a solid reputation in his two years at CBS, reporting from across the Middle East. With shot and shell, the fight continues for possession of this promised land. Polk had reported on CBS and in an article in Harper's Magazine that the Greek government was shot through with corruption. Anyone daring to criticize government policies is likely to be labeled communist and given a one-way ticket to a barren Aegean island. Obviously, such an officially rigged system must be rotten to the core. The U.S. government had provided hundreds of millions of dollars to back the right-wing Greek government 
in a civil war against the communist guerrillas. Kati Martin reported that just before he departed on his ill-fated trip to Salonika, Polk confronted Greece's powerful foreign minister, Constantine Saldaris, about a tip he'd received in the mail. The letter said Saldaris had just deposited $25,000 at Chase Bank in New York. Three days after his meeting with Saldaris, George Polk disappeared. His body was found floating in Salonika Bay, bound at his hands and feet, with a bullet fired at point-blank range at the base of his skull. It was in some ways a nearly perfect crime, except that it wasn't. Here's how Kati Martin says it happened. George Polk landed in Salonika, Greece on Friday, May 7, 1948. He wound up there unintentionally. His flight to a coastal town further north had been diverted due to weather. While he was in Salonika, Polk spent his last 36 hours asking everyone he could about a way to get in touch with the reclusive communist leader, General Marcos Vafiades, who had a hideout in the nearby mountains. He asked officials at the American consulate. He asked fellow reporters. He sought help from the British. And just before he disappeared, he typed a letter to Edward R. Murrow in his hotel room. He wrote me that with a contact, through a contact, I'd like to get to the people who count. A letter Polk was writing to his mother was left in his typewriter unfinished. Investigators advanced the theory that Polk was called to meet with someone who promised to connect him with General Marcos. That someone, they alleged, was local newspaper reporter Gregory Staktopoulos. In this narrative, Staktopoulos unwittingly led Polk into a trap set by two senior communists who shot him and left his body in the water. The motive? To throw American aid to the Greek government into doubt. But that's not what Kati Martin says happened. What follows is her theory of Polk's murder based on documents she says she obtained over the course of her own investigation. So George Polk clearly had dinner with uh, people who promised to take him to his cherished destination, the mountains and the communists, General Marcos. Kati Martin says her investigation revealed that that night, Polk was given a drug-laced drink. didn't take effect until after he returned to the Astoria Hotel. She believes that's why Polk's letter to his mother was never finished. He um, was poisoned, knocked out, carried out of his um, hotel room in a laundry basket. Martin says Polk was dragged from his room, still clad in his pajamas, and taken to an alley behind the hotel. There, she says, the assassins dressed the passed out Polk in clothes they grabbed from his room and then shot him in the back of the head. They bound him at his hands and feet and dumped him, still breathing, into the bay. Clearly, they wanted the body to, to surface as a charge against the communists because they immediately put out that, it, that this was a typical communist uh, scenario. A week later, when Polk's body surfaced, the lead prosecutor in Salonika held a news conference to say he was 1,000% sure that communists had killed Polk. In the months that followed, Greek police would focus mainly on the theory that the guerrillas had committed the crime. But documents do show both Greek and American authorities briefly looked at other motives. For one, they considered the possibility that Polk's death was a crime of passion. Rhea Polk, who was 20 at the time, recounted it in 1990. That I had a lover, or that he had, he had a lover. Either way, they were trying to make it into a family tragedy, a, a passionate thing. But they couldn't do it because we were, I was very young. And we were married so little, and we were obviously in love, and 
They couldn't turn it that way. Katie Martin. They floated so many phony stories about who might have done it. None of them hold up. None of them held up at the time. And certainly when I when I checked them out, I mean, nobody else, nobody had a motive other than the Greek right wing. Formerly secret U.S. government documents from the summer of 1948 do make mention of the tip George Polk received about money the Greek foreign minister Konstantin Saldaris had deposited in a New York bank. At the time, Saldaris was a major political force, a former prime minister, a man who was heralded in newsreels as a warrior in the fight against communist aggression. And in an exclusive Paramount News interview, Konstantin Saldaris, Greek vice premier, has this to say. Greece is fighting an undeclared war so far alone. This is not exclusively a Greek problem. It is a world problem. On August 10th, a U.S. official at the embassy in Athens wrote his boss in Washington. It is circulated that George Polk had a terrific fight with Saldaris the day before he left for Salonika. One of the most persistent theories is that he had discovered Saldaris had shortly before deposited $25,000 to his personal account in the Chase National Bank. That memo went on to warn that any attempt to dig into the deposit could prove volatile for the U.S. The mere fact of such an investigation, if it became known, the letter states, would obviously make valuable political ammunition. Two weeks later, a CIA cable containing previously classified details that have never been reported before suggests the large deposit was made either in Saldaris's name or in the name of his son, who was at the time a student at Columbia. A third memo, reported by Kati Martin, has the State Department asking the FBI to look into the deposit and report back. But there's no record of a reply. Those three documents are the only mentions we have found regarding any attempt on the part of the U.S. government to determine whether Konstantin Saldaris was connected to George Polk's murder. After Polk's death, papers went missing from his Athens apartment. Papers including the letter Polk received tipping him off to the Saldaris bank deposit in New York. In our first episode, we told you about Air Force Colonel Jim Kellis, an investigator brought to Greece to take part in an independent review of the Polk case, an effort funded by newspaper publishers and network executives and conducted by General Wild Bill Donovan, the father of American intelligence. Kellis was only in Greece with Donovan for a month and a half in the summer of 1948, but he quickly caught on to the way Greek authorities were mucking up the Polk case. At the behest of U.S. Embassy officials, who worried he was rocking the boat too hard, Kellis was sent home. But Kati Martin says in 1948, Kellis wrote a letter to General Donovan detailing what he'd learned about Polk's killing from a trusted wartime informant. And just before he was tossed from the case, Kellis claimed he'd been given the name of Polk's assassin. The name that Colonel Kellis provided was Michael Cortesis. Who was Michael Cortesis? And why do so many who've studied the Polk case believe that a British official may have played a role in his death. I think it's absolutely scurrilous. That's next. The CBS News special, Who Killed George Polk, continues. I'm Stephen Portnoy. If you've been with us from the beginning of our story, you know we've now told you of two different storylines that contradict each other, but that attempt to explain the murder of CBS News correspondent George Polk in Greece in 1948. The first was advanced by prosecutors at a 1949 trial and agreed to at the time by the tortured defendant, fellow reporter Gregory Stactopoulos. In that telling, George Polk had hoped Stactopoulos would take him to meet the communist leader, General Marcos Vafiatis, in the mountains. But instead, 
and unbeknownst to Stectopoulos, the communists Polk met that night intended to kill him in an effort to throw American aid to Greece's right-wing government into question at the height of a civil war. Our investigation clearly shows that Stectopoulos' confession was tortured out of him. One of the two men he named was believed to have been killed in the war before Polk's murder, and the other was reported to be dead at the time. The trial was a farce. In our last segment, we laid out an alternate theory of the crime, involving a drugging of Polk, first uncovered by author Kati Martin. George Polk was murdered by a conspiracy of right-wing royalist, very shady characters with tentacles to the highest reaches of Athens' power. And the name of the hitman I provide in my book is there for all the world to see. In researching her book, The Polk Conspiracy, Kati Martin says she was shown documents kept for years by an American investigator in the case that named the central figure in the Polk assassination, Michael Cortesis. Michael Cortesis was, um, whether he pulled the trigger or one of his guys pulled the trigger is, is, is really immaterial. He was one of the murderous guns for hire who was part of this um, shadowy underground based in the port of Piraeus. Piraeus is the main shipping port in the Greek capital of Athens. Athens is where Polk was based. It's where he was living with his young wife, Rhea, and it's where he wrote the broadcasts critical of the right-wing government that would make him a target. Here in Athens, the long-discussed Greek problem finally is being recognized for what it is, a Greek crisis. Days before his death, Polk charged into the office of Greece's foreign minister, Constantine Saldaris. He threatened to blow the lid off a story that he said would end Saldaris's career and put hundreds of millions of U.S. aid dollars to Greece in jeopardy. There was word of a $25,000 deposit in a New York bank account. The right wing was was murderous, and the right wing had everything to lose. I mean, it went right back to, to, to Washington's support on the line. Conti Martin says Michael Cortesis had been a leader of an organized underground group based at the Piraeus port. He had links to Constantine Saldaris, his populist party, and to the people in Salonika who led Polk to his grave. Cortesis' alleged involvement in the killing was kept secret for decades and revealed to Kati Martin in papers collected by Air Force Colonel Jim Kellis. Until he was removed from the scene at the urging of American diplomats, Kellis spent several weeks in Greece in the summer of 1948 watching the investigation play out on behalf of journalists who wanted an independent eye on the Greek authorities. A letter Kellis received by a trusted informant that summer spells out Cortesis' role. It includes the chilling line, he is capable of anything. Conti Martin says a man matching Michael Cortez's description paid a mysterious visit to Polk's Athens apartment in the weeks before the murder. Rhea Polk's maid remembered seeing him there. At the time, Polk had been receiving anonymous death threats by phone due to his criticisms of the government on air and in print. Whether it was a coincidence or something more sinister, Martin says Cortesis actually arrived in Salonika days before Polk's murder and accompanying Cortesis on his trip, of all people, was his longtime friend, Salonika's police chief, Major Nicholas Muscandis. The names Constantine Saldaris and Michael Cortesis were never mentioned at the only trial held for Polk's murder. Cortesis disappeared into that murky underworld without ever facing justice, but none of these guys ever faced justice. It was Gregory Stactopoulos who would be sentenced to life in prison after being tortured into making a false confession by Major Muscandis. 
On the streets of Thessaloniki, which is what Salonika is called today, I stood on the block where Muskandis kept Stectopolis for years after his trial, secretly imprisoned in a basement cell. It's where I met local author Sofia Nicolaito, who wrote a book about the Stectopolis trial called The Scapegoat. He walks into the police station 38 years old and comes out of prison 50 years old. He walked into the police station and did not emerge as a free man for another 12 years. Yeah. Sofia, what compelled you to write this story? It could happen to anyone. In turbulent times, when you're caught in these events, you can't undo them. No escape. No escape. I should note the theory of the crime we've laid out in this episode has not been universally accepted by those who've looked into the Polk case. Johnny Atreides is a 90-year-old retired professor who grew up in Salonika. He doubts the story told by Kati Martin that a drugged and passed out Polk was taken from his room, stuffed into a laundry cart, and shot by assassins in a nearby alley. In those days, the few elevators in Salonika uh, could probably take no more than three people, and not particularly heavy people. Uh, they, they were tiny. It's impossible, physically impossible, for it to be, be done uh, this way. Iatridis also believes that Konstantin Saldaris wouldn't have worried much about a reporter threatening to reveal a $25,000 deposit in New York. The fact that the foreign minister of Greece, a very wealthy guy, who comes to New York often, his son is at Columbia, the fact that he would have money deposited in an American bank, even if it is much more than you know, $25,000 in those days, it was quite a bit of money. But still, there is absolutely nothing unusual, strange, or suspect about it. Here's the view of Elias Vlanton, who wrote a book about the Polk case. Do I think it's possible that he had a... Um confrontation with the foreign minister and scream that your country's not doing enough and you guys are cheating money. Yeah, I think that's possible. That would fit his personality. And it was close enough to the truth that it would fit, you know, it would fit the facts. But to go from there to say that Saldaris would organize such a murder is inconceivable to me. This is like, yeah, it's just inconceivable. Kati Martin stands firmly by her reporting and brushes off her critics. They're welcome to have their day in court or to publish their accounts, but uh, I don't think that they can doubt uh, the veracity of, uh, of my documentation or come anywhere near to matching the kind of detective work I did, frankly, or to the number of interviews I did with, uh, with key players. I mean, um, bring it on, but there's room for more than one account. I just happen to think that mine is the right one. Other theories for the murder of George Polk include the possibility that local thugs engaged in the drug trade killed him, or that some element of the Greek communists did indeed do it. I found it interesting that over the months I'd spent looking into the murder of George Polk, talking to various sources who'd spent years studying the case, one name kept coming out of people's mouths. Randall Cote. Randall Cote? Randall Cote became sort of the mystery man. So who was Randall Cote? He was an official based at the British consulate in Salonika. He was a press attaché. His job was to facilitate the flow of information on behalf of His Majesty's government to reporters. Now, in 1948, British influence all over the world was fading fast. The British Empire was in steep decline. But having been the primary foreign influence in Greece immediately after World War II, 
the British had deep connections across the country, among the right wing and among the communist guerrillas. George Polk knew that, and that's why he went to see Randall Coate the day before he disappeared. Some who've looked at the case who doubt Cotty Martin's theory believe that Randall Coate may have led Polk to his demise by doing what he'd asked, putting him in touch with those who could get him an interview with General Marcos in the mountains. The suspicion is based in part on the fact that just after George Polk disappeared and before his body was found in the bay, Randall Coate left his post in Salonika for the British embassy in Oslo, Norway. 60 Minutes caught up with Coate in 1990. He admitted to being one of the last people to see George Polk alive. I had no previous uh, warning that he was coming. He suddenly burst into my office. Coates said he perceived the 34-year-old, six-foot-tall Texan to be in too much of a hurry. I felt that his impulsiveness and his uh, haste to get on with the, his uh, venture would be a great danger to him. Coates said Polk didn't like getting the brush off. He seemed rather upset and almost angered by it. Code insists the meeting was brief and that Polk stormed off in a huff without the advice he sought. My memory on that is absolutely clear. I did not give him any sort of lead which could have led to his uh, terrible death. 60 Minutes asked Cote about the mysterious way he left his post in Salonika around the time of Polk's murder. Coate said it wasn't a mystery at all. These postings have to be planned months in advance. Everybody knew that I was going. And on the idea of him unwittingly leading Polk to his death? I do know that I gave him no information whatsoever. And therefore, this is absolutely baseless and unfounded. When we come back, we'll hear from General Marcos Vafiades about what he would have done had he known our correspondent sought an exclusive interview. Would you have granted him an interview? Would you have said yes? Next. The CBS News special, Who Killed George Polk, continues. Here again, White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy. Our CBS News Middle East correspondent was killed in May of 1948 while trying to get an interview with the head of the Greek communist guerrillas who'd been at war with Greece's right-wing government. George Polk had been an outspoken critic of that government, which was being supported by hundreds of millions of dollars of U.S. aid. A Navy veteran of World War II who covered the Nuremberg trials, Polk described the Greek government as fascist. American policy at the time was to stand firmly behind that government simply because it was fending off the forces aligned with Moscow. But George's younger brother, William, said Polk did not believe it was the responsibility of a reporter just to tow Washington's line. George felt that the reporter's job was precisely not to do that, that he must be, in the best sense of the word, irresponsible, that he must stand outside and ask the questions which the officials were not asking, and he must say, yes, but tell me the truth, what's really happening, not what is it that you say that you want to accomplish. The night he disappeared, Polk typed a letter to Edward R. Murrow, noting that he'd been trying since the start of the Civil War to get closer to the Greek communist guerrillas. He wanted what he described as direct, really business-like contact with their leader, General Marcos Vafiades. In 1990, as he reported on Polk's murder for 60 Minutes, Ed Bradley tracked down General Marcos and conducted an interview that never aired. Did you know that Polk was trying to reach you? Marcos said he did not know at the time that Polk was aiming for an interview. But if he had known, Marcos insisted, there would have been ways of assuring him safe passage into the mountains and back. After all, other reporters had made the trip, both before and after Polk's death. If you knew Polk wanted to see you, 
Would you have granted him an interview? Would you have said yes? Definitely, Marcos answered. It was a critical time for the communists in their fight against the government, and Marcos said his side would have welcomed the publicity. He in particular would have benefited from the attention. An internecine fight later in 1948 led to Marcos being tossed from power. The rift ultimately played a key part in the defeat of the communists in the Greek Civil War. Marcos would spend three decades in exile in the Soviet Union before returning to Greece in 1983. Prior to his death in 1992, Marcos Vafiades traveled to the U.S. and attended the George Polk Awards. Milbury Polk, George's niece, remembers. It was a very emotional event, um, and I went up to him to say hello, and, I, I, and he embraced me, and I said, I'm sorry, I'm the wrong Polk, because he'd wanted to meet my uncle, and we laughed about that. Milbury Polk was born in 1954, nearly six years after her uncle's murder. Her father, William, spent the rest of his life trying to get to the bottom of what happened to his older brother. For a while, we lived in Greece, and that was a sort of difficult for Dad because sometimes we would drive into Athens and find George's picture plastered all over the streets. The Greeks followed the murder of an American newsman much closer than we Americans did. They especially keyed in on the torture and sham trial of Gregory Stectopoulos. For the Greek people, finding out what happened in that particular murder was sort of a, I don't know what the right word is, but it, it was an indicator of what was wrong in their society. And so if they could figure out the truth, then perhaps they would come to a better understanding of their own history. The early days of the Cold War, the period in which our correspondent was killed, saw the founding of a policy of containment of communism that would continue through the Korean War and lead to America's involvement in Vietnam. William Polk, who became a noted academic and author, reflected on that in 1990. One of the terrible problems that we Americans have is that we have no historical sense. Uh, things that happened three or four years ago might as well have happened in the Middle Ages. We really don't involve them in our current decision-making. And a lot of the things that came out of Greece were very important in the run-up to Vietnam. He noted that Washington may have gotten the wrong message from the Greek government's victory in the Civil War. We thought we won in Greece, and therefore we thought that we could win in Vietnam. What we saw was that we helped a faltering government with our aid program and military assistance, and they hung on. But as George was trying to point out on Greece, um, a guerrilla war is really not a formal positional war between armies. It's, it's violent politics. Ed Bradley asked William Polk about the significance of his brother's murder. I, having served in government, having been in academic life, having been both a private citizen and an official, strongly believe that unless people like you, uh, like the CBS News tradition, can stand outside and can say, I want to really know what happened, I want to really know the facts, and pass them along to the American public, I don't think our chances of surviving as a free society are as good as they would be. I think that's an absolutely vital function in our way of life. And I say that despite my own personal problems with journalists I've known over the years, and I'm sure many people's problems with you and the other members of CBS and other journalists, it's often very inconvenient to be asked about your mistakes, to be held to account for your actions. But that kind of thing can really only be done by reporters. And I felt very strongly then and still feel very strongly today that when a reporter is murdered in the course of trying to do his job, uh, that the whole fabric 
of our society, particularly our democracy, is called into danger. When we come back, a look at how persistent and pervasive that danger remains, with 67 journalist deaths last year alone. We've been telling you a 75-year-old story that's highly relevant today, as journalists are increasingly coming under assault. For the first time since the Cold War, Russia has charged an American reporter with espionage, alleging he was an agent of the U.S. government. The Wall Street Journal firmly denies that Evan Gershkovich was doing anything other than informing readers. The 1948 murder of CBS newsman George Polk was a shock to the profession of journalism and to the world. The framing of an innocent man was a terrible shame. That the real killers of George Polk went free was not a surprise, not to those charged with keeping track of such grim statistics as these. Nearly 2,200 journalists and media workers have been killed since the Committee to Protect Journalists started documenting these killings in 1992. Jody Ginsburg is the president of CPJ. She says last year, 67 media workers were killed on the job, a 50% increase from the year before. And what's really striking about that is the majority of those who were killed were not operating in war zones. What we're seeing increasingly is individuals targeted outside of conflict regions for reporting on political corruption or corruption of big business. Jody Ginsburg notes that several journalists were killed last year in the early days of Russia's war on Ukraine. They include members of a Fox News crew. But she says most of the killings of reporters have occurred in developing countries where the rule of law is especially weak and reporters routinely face extreme risk. The first journalist that we documented as being killed in 2023 was a, a Cameroonian radio journalist by the name of Martinez Zogo. Martinez Zogo was uh, involved in reporting on corruption at the highest levels of government. There are cases closer to home. Shootings over the past decade have taken the lives of reporters in Roanoke, Virginia and Annapolis, Maryland. Earlier this year in Florida, local TV reporter Dylan Lyons was shot and killed while on assignment covering a homicide. The killing of journalists in the United States is extremely rare, but it does happen. There was this case last fall in Nevada. Police in Las Vegas have arrested Clark County's public administrator for the murder of 69-year-old veteran newspaper reporter Jeff Gehrman. The suspect's name? Robert Tellis. Tellis is accused of killing Review Journal investigative reporter Jeff Gearman after Gearman exposed problems in the public administrator's office under the leadership of Tellis, including a possible inappropriate relationship with a woman in his office. Tellis accused Gearman of derailing his reelection. Again, Jody Ginsburg of the Committee to Protect Journalists. He's a local reporter. He was well known in his community, and it's mostly local journalists actually who are targets of killings. They are exposed and vulnerable because they often work for smaller news outlets and because they are known in their communities. People know where they live. Why is it important for stories like this to be widely understood? We are in an environment, I think, in which journalists are increasingly seen as the bad guys. And that's deliberate. It's deliberate. It's a smoke and mirrors. It's, it's to throw sand in our eyes so that the people who are engaged with exposing wrongdoing are themselves considered unreliable. It's a deliberate tactic. Here in the United States, we have a robust system of justice where it is possible, for example, in the case of uh, German's killing in, in Las Vegas, there's the opportunity for the perpetrator to be tried and convicted. 
What is the likelihood that in all of the cases that you mentioned overseas, that these people will will, uh, be brought to justice? Well, this is one of the biggest problems we actually face, which is impunity uh, over journalist killings. Ginsburg says in eight out of 10 cases, the committee is tracked worldwide. The killer of a journalist has gone free. So if you think 80% of journalist killings going unpunished, it effectively creates an environment in which people see that it's fair game. They can get away with it, literally get away with murder. Bill McCarran, who heads the National Press Club here in Washington, has been focused for years on the killing of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi, a Virginia resident and critic of the Saudi royal family whom U.S. officials believe was disembodied with a bone saw after he entered the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey. If Saudi Arabia is able to get away with this with impunity, uh, it really is a chilling chilling message to journalists all over the world. In addition to the Khashoggi case, Bill McCarran has also spent more than a decade trying to draw attention to the plight of Austin Tice. Austin Tice previously served as a captain in the Marine Corps and studied law before heading to Syria as a freelance journalist. Tice disappeared outside Damascus in 2012, where he was covering rebel fighting against the Syrian army. More than a decade since his capture, Tice's parents believe their son's safe return depends on the direct engagement of the highest levels of the U.S. government. Bill McCarran also believes it will make a difference. When a citizen, a journalist, is held for 10 years like this by a country like Syria, it certainly does not help America project strength. And so it's more than just taking one hostage. It's taking America hostage. It's taking democracy itself hostage. Again, Jody Ginsburg at the Committee to Protect Journalists. The role of journalists and journalism is to hold those in power to account so that we, as the general public, know what those officials are doing with our tax dollars. That's an absolutely vital role, this watchdog role that journalists play. It's no surprise, therefore, that the people who potentially are not using uh, our money in the correct ways are involved in corruption and wrongdoing, do not want journalists to publish and broadcast. And in the most extreme cases, will use murder, will use violence to silence those journalists. And so the Polk killing has many resonances, I think, for journalists and the situation of journalists today. So what can readers, viewers and listeners do to support them? I think the first thing we can do is literally, with our dollars, support local independent news outlets. The second thing, and I would appeal to our political leaders and others in this, is to champion journalism. It's the First Amendment. And every time someone with authority in political leadership or or who has another kind of major platform denigrates and demeans all journalism, it makes every single journalist that bit more vulnerable. In 1948, after George Polk was killed in Greece, his friends in the profession established an award in his name. In the years since, the George Polk Award has been given to hundreds of reporters. Woodward and Bernstein, Christiana Manpour, and Walter Cronkite are just a few of its famous recipients. Journalists think of this as a kind of basically a courage award, that is, for a reporter who will do something extraordinary at great risk. John Darton is the curator of the program at Long Island University. 
Darton believes George Polk would be pleased with the work that's been honored in his name. More than ever now, our country and the world needs investigative reporters out there. As you know, the number of local newspapers is dwindling. I, I hate to think of certain cities where local news is no longer covered and the cities have a history of corruption. You know, the light is dimming and we need, we need good reporting uh, to shine a light in all these darker corners. I'll have some final thoughts in a moment. Since its founding in the 1930s, CBS News has lost a number of correspondents, producers, and technicians on assignment. George Polk was the first. With this program, we honor all of our fallen colleagues. Cameraman Paul Douglas and sound technician James Brolin were killed in Iraq in 2006. Translator Anwar Abbas Lafta was abducted and killed there in 2007. We're on our own in a boat with a wheezing engine that makes maybe 10 miles an hour. Two days after that final report from the Mekong River, correspondent George Sievertson, producer Jerry Miller, and five of their colleagues were ambushed and killed in Cambodia in June of 1970. CBS News correspondent Odell Vaughn Jr. died in a helicopter crash while covering the remnants of Hurricane Agnes in 1972. Pioneering African-American broadcaster Michelle Clark perished in a plane crash that same year. The late 60 Minutes correspondent Bob Simon and his crew endured 40 days of torture at the hands of Iraqi soldiers while they covered the first Gulf War. Other colleagues have been severely wounded, including our Cami McCormick, who was injured while traveling with U.S. forces in Afghanistan in an IED attack that killed a soldier. When we began this project, we aimed to tell the story of George Polk's murder on its 75th anniversary more fully than we ever had before. We felt it was the right thing to do. In the spring of 1949, after Gregory Stactopoulos' trial, Edward R. Murrow and his colleagues wrapped a series of reports on George Polk's murder. As was so often the case with Murrow, his final remarks were weighted with wisdom and have stood the test of time. So we'll give him the final word. There are many unsolved questions surrounding this case. It may be that the full story will never be told. Those of us who knew George and worked with him can never cease to be concerned about his murder. There is nothing more to say, except that George Polk was one of those reporters who believed that the pursuit of truth shall set you free, even if you never catch up with it. This CBS News special can be heard in its entirety by going to cbsnews.com slash polk. That's cbsnews.com slash p-o-l-k. Who Killed George Polk, a CBS News special, has been written and produced by me, Stephen Portnoy, and Paul Woodhull. Additional production by Jamie Benson. Craig Swagler is our executive producer. Special thanks to Rich Lamb, David Plotkin, and the CBS News Archives. And from 60 Minutes, Claudia Weinstein, Rebecca Chertok-Gonsalves, Chris Layden, Gene Solomon Langley, and the late Ed Bradley. This CBS News special, Who Killed George Polk?, is sponsored by the National Press Club, the world's leading professional organization for journalists dedicated to press freedom and media literacy around the globe.
When you're committed to raising the standard, you're bound to ruffle some feathers. At Happy Egg, we like to say we farm differently. But in reality, we produce eggs the way people used to, by partnering with local small family farmers who raise our happy hens on eight or more acres. Because in our opinion, farming shouldn't be complicated. It should be happy. Choose happy with Happy Egg. Visit happyegg.com and look for the yellow carton at a store near you. Happy Egg.